Well, it is Randall. What is this? Uh, like you're 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 coming up Fourth. on the five time club. So this is one more. New that is interest. elite company, I must say. Yeah, I think we... Matt isn't even in that club yet. <laughs> I was gonna say you've been on the show almost as much as me. Do we have a five timer yet? Nope. Whoa. Whoa. Randall is definitely our most recurring guest. Followed closely by Emily Maynard. Mm. Yeah, I was, I was going to think Emily might be close to five. Well, I got to write another book then and, and pull ahead again. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What is up, everybody? Welcome to the Storyman Podcast, episode 170. I am Clay Morgan. I'm J.R. Foresteros. And I am Matt Michelados. We are the Storyman. We also appear, or work does at least, over at NorvalRogers.com. We're not physically there, because it's a website, and that would be weird. We are full uh, live wait, 3D characters, I'm, not 8-bits. I am there right now. Are we not supposed to be there? Wait, well, are you actually... Hey, come on, Tron. Oh, no way. Did you Tron it up? <laughs> I thought we were supposed to. You said we're at Norval. <laughs> Man, I wish I could be in a website. Get on your light cycle. We're at the podcast right now. <laughs> Today we're talking with author and, hey guys, four-time guest Randall Rouser about his new amazing. book, What's So Amazing About Grace. What's so confusing about That's Grace. That's true, too. <laughs> What's so confusing <laughs> about trying to say a title about Grace? That plays Wait, on what is a the song actual about title? Amazing Which one's Grace? the actual title? <laughs> What's so confusing about Grace? Weren't you confused at all during the episode? <laughs> Look, if you have ever um, not been able to figure out the entire theology of God and Grace, um, probably a few <laughs> of you out there you. might be in there. This is probably a book it, that you want to check out. If you've got everything figured out, this episode <laughs> slash podcast may not be for you. But then again, if you've It'll ever thought that every waking moment of your life, you were probably about to fall into the clutches of hell, then you might just need to listen. Also, uh, it's a great interview. Randall's awesome. You know, yeah. we are also going to share a little bit about of our childhood theologies. And as Jesus said, unless you are like one of these little ones, you cannot come to the children of, or to the presence of heaven. So... <laughs> Take careful notes, my friends. <laughs> to the children of the corn. And speaking, Nailed of, it. speaking of books that you should check out, JR. Hey! Here I was, <laughs> working away my little fingers on the keyboard this morning when a notification popped up that JR Forest Arrows was live. Live on Facebook? And you are doing something that I like to refer to as the Marty McFly moment. Opening your George McFly moment? Book. I mean, George McFly. George McFly. Oh my Marty gosh. McFly moment is when you <laughs> this, discover your mom has a crush to you on by you. The Obudsman, because we're going to need so many corrections. corrections. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I got to unbox my uh, my books from InterVarsity Press. They, yes. they finally showed up. And I say finally because actually one of my friends who pre-ordered the book from InterVarsity's website got her book in the mail already. Amazing. She actually so, got it. Before I got mine. <laughs> so, JR, this is your first ever 
book that's all yours. Like you've appeared in books before with articles and things, but this is your first ever book. Like tell us what it felt like opening that box and seeing a big pile of your books for the first time. So that's the craziest part, right? Like I had seen individual copies of my book, either in pictures or I had signed some for Art House Dallas for an event that they did. But like you open up the box and all that's in the box are a whole bunch of copies of my book. And Mm. so like to, to the cover is amazing. It's textured and it's got a matte finish. So in addition to the fact that the graphic is fantastic, it just feels awesome to hold in your hands and to flip through. I actually, this is going to sound dumb, but I read some of it and I was like, man, this book is really good. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I don't know if it's just because it's been so long since I wrote it, but as I was reading through it, like I sort of in a couple of, at a couple of points forgot that it was mine and I was just like enjoying reading it, Um, (laughs) which was like a really weird, I know that sounds really weird, but it was, it was a great experience. I was at church once and the pastor started quoting at length from one of my books. I didn't recognize it. I was like, I don't know who this is, but they like agree with me on a very deep level. <laughs> and I this was like, person oh, is wait. speaking directly to my soul. And That's conversely, Jared, oh, wait until people start telling you their favorite parts. And you're going to be like, oh, I don't remember saying that, but I'm glad it illuminated your life. <laughs> but brilliant. <laughs> so good. Yeah, so uh, I have copies of the book at my house. If you want to stop by, you might be able to talk me out of one. Um and it comes out in like three weeks, which is crazy. Yeah. So, And the book is called Empathy for the Devil, which actually is a perfect segue into our interview. That's right. Randall is going to share a story pretty quickly about how bad he wanted to be friends with the devil as a child, which sounds scary until you hear Randall spin on it. And then it sounds really sweet. So... Uh, Without any further ado, let's hop over to our interview with Randall Rouser about his new book, What's So Confusing About Grace? Today's episode of the Story Men podcast is brought to you by Audible. Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. We recommend some of our favorite books all the time, and at the end of the show, we have a couple of suggestions, but Matt said... The Fifth Season by N.K. Jemisin is amazing. And you could download The Fifth Season for free by going to audibletrial.com slash thestorymen. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash thestorymen. Now on to our interview. Uh, we are back today with Randall Rouser. Randall, welcome back to The Storyman. So glad to have you back. You know what it just occurred to me? Is that you guys are my second favorite trinity. One podcast and three persons. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's Amazing. good. I'll take second Dips favorite trinity. The Holy Spirit. Yeah. Yeah, you can you can use that. Feel free to use that. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so I have to say, I was really uh, – I was I, surprised isn't exactly the right word, I guess. But I, I think I just enjoyed how much of your new book is so memoir heavy. Yes. It uh, is that. How like when you when you started when you started into that like what how, when did that decision come about to sort of explore this the questions you raise in this book so thoroughly through your own experiences? Well, I did a, a seminary chapel at the seminary I teach probably five years ago, and I discussed different views of salvation, and it was just based on my own personal reflections over forty years, and that was really the seed for for writing this book. I think 
the minute that you tell personal stories, the minute that you tell self-deprecating stories, people can relate and people are engaged. And I found that to be a, a useful way to get into some deep theological waters. Well, right out of the box, you talk about how when you were a child, you wanted to be friends with the devil. It's hard to get more self-deprecating than that. <laughs> yes, yes, that was uh, that's how my my Christian journey started off. Wow! So it was we were driving along, and I'm five years old, and my mom, because uh, I'm evangelical, it's in part what the book is about, reflecting on evangelical identity, and a big part of that is making that decision. And so I was in the back seat of the car. She turned around and says, "You've got to choose God or the devil," and I wanted to be friends with both. And I'm just glad that my dad didn't crash the car at that moment because who knows where <laughs> I would have gone. The- theology with children is always really fun. I-, I remember getting in trouble with my mom when I was a kid because she was telling the Noah story and she said that, or, or we were listening to it on tape or something. But whoever was telling the story, it said like God began to cry, and that's when the rain came. And I was like, oh, does that mean lightning was his snot? And my mom was like, super furious. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's inappropriate. Totally inappropriate. No, that sounds pretty blasphemous, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't trying to be friends with the devil, at least. Well, I thought, I thought your impulse came from such a good place because you thought, why, why do I have to choose? Why can't maybe I can be friends with them and they can then be friends with each other? I thought that was a beautiful sentiment. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think that there is a lesson there for us generally, which is, uh, well, it's actually kind of cliched now. You'll say, tell me about the God you don't believe in, because I probably don't believe in him either. But it is a reminder that we do need to get beyond labels and find out what people are actually talking about. And and I do agree that I think my intentions were noble, but my understanding was really lacking. Uh, so, so from the beginning of this book, you're really pushing on our understanding of salvation. And I think I was impressed. Uh, I mean, we were both raised evangelical, so maybe that's not such a surprise. But I was, I was very impressed with how, how much I resonated with your sort of development of your understanding of salvation. So maybe just like in broad brushstrokes, can you kind of walk through what some of your major turning points were? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I started off five years old. It was just a matter of being friends with Jesus, asking him into your heart. Not a lot of content to that in terms of doctrine. It's just sort of purely relational. Uh, By the time I was in my teens, it was all about the four spiritual laws. And Bill Bright, as as you would know, you know, this little famous tract that outlines salvation in terms of a chasm that separates you from God, but he has this wonderful plan and it's Jesus and he's the bridge to get across the chasm to God. Uh, But then I began adding other laws. Uh, I realized, for example, that Jesus had said, if if you're ashamed of him, then he will be ashamed of you when he returns. And that one was huge. That became my fifth spiritual law, essentially. And it was this this sort of guilt-ridden, fear-driven idea that I need to be bold in proclaiming and living out the gospel or Jesus would be ashamed of me and I would go to hell when he came back. And then beyond that, there was just a whole bunch of law uh, that was kept getting added on. So part of it was not listening to secular music or not drinking alcohol or, you know, trying to do other things in order to, in a sense, be good enough and meet the ethical requirements of salvation. 
so that by the time I was my mid late teens, I mean, the gospel had gotten pretty complicated and, you know, there's a lot of room at that point for doubt and for a little bit of existential angst that you're going to get left behind <laughs> at the end of it all. Randall, it sounds a little bit like maybe you were raised in a, a church similar to mine where you would have learned such Bible verses as don't drink, dance or chew or go with girls who do. Uh, and don't uh, don't drink or chew or smoke or chew and or go with girls who do. Oh. Yes, yes, <laughs> yeah. You can no alcohol, no tobacco. Right. Those were sort of the eleventh and twelfth commandments. <laughs> Devil's party favors. <laughs> you know, I I had a very similar experience. Like I was raised in a church where um, I I came into a relationship with God because people who loved me told me that God loved me. And I was like, oh, that's great. I, like, I'm in. And I, you know, I said a very simple prayer, you know, got baptized. And then, yeah, when I was when I was a teenager was when I kind of got into the legalism phase, though, it was for me, it was much more about I think I I think I actually needed the structure of some of the rules. And then I I took it upon myself to proclaim my own spiritual vocation and handing those rules out to everyone else. Um <laughs> You know, I don't know, like I'm I all of us were raised in evangelical churches. Matt Clay, what were like what were your experiences like with that? Yeah, f- same for me. I mean, it was like Randall said, it was very relational. This is I, I wanted to check in and make sure that everybody else in my family had done this too. But at that point, you know, it's it's your mom telling you this is what you need to do, this is what's good. So um I had a very similar, I guess, evolution from that spiritual regard as Randall. I think, yeah, me too. I I think part of it is though, like legalism one, I think is a normal kind of part of most people's spiritual journey. I'm not saying it's necessarily good, but when I look at like raising children, legalism is how you keep them safe. Uh, Like you don't, you don't explain to kids like, Hey, don't put that fork. Like don't put a fork in the electrical outlet is not negotiable. You don't talk about necessarily why it is like, there's so many things you have to just tell them, like, don't do that. Don't eat that. Don't put that in your mouth. Don't, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I think on the, as you start getting older and you walk across the street without holding someone's hand, you're like, Whoa, okay. Wow. Uh, is that okay to do? And I think there's some similarities in the spiritual life. Like some of those boundaries, like it's not necessarily wrong to drink alcohol, right? But that was put in place, I think, supposedly, to protect people, particularly when they're young believers. At least that was, I mean, that's what I eventually decided after I came out of it, mostly came out of it. (laughs) Yeah, and and I would just add to that, music and pop culture in general was always appealing. Music is such a huge love of mine. Like I was born with this just crazy love of music, even though I'm not a musician. I'm not like that person who just picked up an instrument and played. I, I hated piano lessons and quit everything I, my mom tried to get me to play. But it became a real obstacle to my life in the way that because almost all music was bad, I wasn't allowed to listen to any of it. I wasn't going to stop trying. So it it was this constant battle. And I feel like I might have ended up pursuing some different things had I been allowed to. You know, like if, if music wasn't from the devil, I very likely would have ended up being a communications major in college, for example, because I would have been able to embrace radio and listen to music in my life or different things like that. Everything had to be secret. It made me feel 
negative and bad and less than. And and that's unfortunate, you know, how legalism kind of comes in. But yeah, then as you start to come of age, <laughs> you try to own it and you find yourself turning into the one who then passes those messages along. And these so, are these are tensions right back to the New Testament, the tension between law and, and grace or between antinomianism or being without law and uh, an expectation that you have to fulfill the law. And you find Christians throughout history, like Dostoevsky, he constantly lived in the reality of grace and wrestling with his sin. And then Tolstoy, the old Tolstoy, was famously uptight about trying to meet all the demands of the law. And I find, I find those pulling within myself and throughout my life, on the one hand, resting in grace, and the other hand, wanting to meet the requirements of the law. So... so Oh, go ahead, Matt. Sorry. I, I was just going to say, so we're talking a lot about here are some like common ways of looking at salvation or soteriology. Uh, are, are, are we saying, or are you saying, Randall, that these are all incorrect or incomplete, or what would you say to that? Well, I, I think that what this indicates is the Christian life is lived out in tension. I mean, one in one of the chapters, I, I recall having this debate with a friend in university 20 some years ago about whether a serial killer could be saved. And my friend, I mean, he's living out, we're living out this very tension because on the one hand he's saying, well, of course is a serial, even a practicing serial killer, right? Not someone who repents, but someone who sins in an ongoing way by murdering people and burying them. And he's saying, yeah, that, that person could be saved. And I'm saying, no, that person can't be saved. You have to draw a line somewhere. <laughs> Just to clarify, was your friend a serial killer himself? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, that's, that's one of the unanswered questions in the back of ground of this book, I think. Okay. All right. Good. I always, I always like when I'm having theological conversations, I try to connect and see why is this important in your life? You know, so like maybe, maybe he was wrestling with that. Okay. It's like the pastor who keeps preaching against pornography or something because that's his right. personal demon. Yeah, exactly. But you know you can you can take that same thing and move to something like gossip because in 1 Corinthians 6 Paul seems to say that people who are slanderers or gossips will not be within the kingdom of God and then you think yeah but right. how often do I talk about somebody behind their back so we don't have to just talk about something extreme like a serial killer I find that same tension when I talk about and look at gossip or slandering other people in my own life hmm. or or pride right which seems to be all over the place in religious, like professional religious people are often prideful or angry. Uh, so are they saved? Are they going to be in the kingdom of God or we, <laughs> I guess I should say. Oh. We have, yeah. I mean, psychologists have identified what they call an optimism bias that most people, I think about 70% of the population or 80% are overly optimistic about their, their own character and their own life prospects and you see that lived out in the religious life where people tend to think, well, God, you know, he's kind of happy with me, but that guy over down the street there, he's the big sinner. And so, you know, it's one thing if you're just talking about this generic optimism bias, but it can become pretty dangerous if you're actually measuring the righteous and the unrighteous and putting yourself in the righteous, because you're going to probably be blinded to some pretty big sins. Wow. Well, and... 
I mean, even even pushing on. I mean, again, so if if you haven't figured out by now, Randall's book is sort of just trying to mess with all of these pretty difficult questions in a way that I would say is is definitely in in keeping with the the other books that you've written, where you you, you often like. I I think the one it reminded me the most of is what on earth do we know about heaven, right? Where you're just taking some kind of individual questions and, and really pressing on them though. Again, I think this one, you do it much more through the lens of your own experience mostly, but um, you know, you, you even point out that like we have these sort of fences in Christianity uh, like the Trinity, right? Where we say basically, well, uh, to be orthodox, to be safe, you need to kind of be inside of this this fence. I use the, I I talk about the Trinity that way all the time, but even that becomes problematic, right? Uh, can you talk about that a little bit? So there's this uh, document called the Athanasian Creed from about it was probably written around the year 500 and was very influential in the history of the church, and it says that for a person to be saved, they have to articulate and affirm the doctrine of the Trinity. And then from that point on, this document, the Athanasian Creed, goes on to summarize a very perplexing version of the doctrine of the Trinity. And I, I'm telling you, if, if that's what's required for salvation, then the vast number of people in my church and most churches are not saved because they cannot articulate the gospel or the doctrine of God to that degree. Um, so then it raises this very interesting question of how much doctrine do we have to have? How many things do we have to get right? in order to be saved. Uh, and I think that if you think about salvation primarily in those terms, in terms of getting the doctrines right, then that will leave you in a pretty scary place because it's pretty tough to know that you've got all the doctrines right in order to be saved. So while I think doctrine is very important, I mean, I teach theology for a living. I think that we really have to get back to thinking about salvation in terms of relationship uh, and of course, that involves wanting to get doctrines right. But I think when you try to to draw those boundaries of in and out, then we begin to get into trouble. Just to just to clarify, Randall, when you say relationship, you mean relationship to God or to one another or both? Well, uh, ultimately to God, but certainly, as, as the old saying goes, there are no Lone Ranger Christians. So, um, to be saved is always to be saved into community. So I would add. Uh, other people as well. Rand Randall, I'm curious about how you've had a couple books come out. I mean, this is the fourth time you've been on our show because you're constantly putting out good content. And I don't know if you're just sitting there with, you know, 10 ideas lined up for books, trying to pick the one that's next or not, or if a lot of this comes out of your teaching work or both. But is there something in moving towards the idea of grace and that we are saved in the community and that love is the fulfillment of the law that you felt made this book more timely than perhaps another theological consideration? Well, for, for me, I mean, it, it, this is certainly why this book matters is because it was very much my own story of trying to figure things out, trying to figure out what salvation means. I, I'll tell you, I wish that I had had this book 30 years ago when I was trying to figure some of this stuff out. Mm. Uh, there are chapters, for example, where I talk about uh, that mysterious age of accountability. The moment that <laughs> I was told growing up that you cross from being default eligible for heaven to being damnable unless you do the right things. So it, when was this age of accountability? Is it, is it when you're 
turn six years old or when you turn 13 or when you turn 18. Nobody could tell me, but at somewhere there was this age of accountability. Man, that was lenient. I, it was like four years, eight months where I came from. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, there, there was this one moment when my, my niece, she's in university now, but when she was two years old, she asked for a glass of water. Her mom gives her the glass of water and she looks straight at her mom and then dumps it on the carpet. And you know, you think, <laughs> that is that moment, the, two, the terrible twos where you cross over into that age of accountability. And these, for me, these questions really mattered when I had my own daughter 15 years ago, because suddenly now I'm thinking, does she have to believe certain things in order Mm -hmm. to be saved? And if so, when do I have to make sure that she believes those things? So the book is, in a sense, it's me working some of these things out. And yeah, there's all sorts of loose ends at the end of it, but that's life. So Randall, can I ask you, like, we, we have a variety of people who listen to the show and some of them are devout Christians and some are not like if someone were listening right now and they said, uh, yeah, I've been debating this whole Christianity thing. I think I want to follow Jesus. Like, what would you, what would you say to them? Like, wh- where do you start? Get your, yeah, I absolutely understand you're providing us a lot of questions, but like in, in real life, sitting down across from someone, where do you start? What do you say to them about what this means? You mean about what it means to follow Jesus? Right. Yeah. Like, where do you? I, I'm. I'm guessing you don't. You don't do like a. Well, you were saying you went from kind of a childlike understanding to the four spiritual laws to something else, the eighteen spiritual laws. Like, where do you start with someone who's interested? Yeah. Well, so much of it would depend, first of all, on the person. Like, so I grew up from this conversionist tradition where you. You just kind of confrontationally, you you meet a person and like I have a chapter where I talk about street evangelism. And so you would just t- tell them, you know, if you don't uh, confess your sins on that, then you can go to hell tonight. And I just found now that that, that is not a helpful way to lead people into salvation because it, it's based on fear and it's often based on guilt. And it's not that there isn't a place for fear and guilt, but I think if that's your overall driving force when you're sharing the gospel, then then I think that it's not a healthy place ultimately. I think that what we need to be is attractional, that we need to draw people by the very lives that we live. To remember that Jesus summarized the law in terms of loving God and loving neighbor, and neighbor included everyone who is the kind of people that you wouldn't want to have over to your house for dinner. Those are your neighbors. So I would begin by hopefully being the kind of person that lives that out and can develop relationships with people that they are drawn into and want to know more about that rather than kind of beat people over the head with a tract on a street corner, which was what I was doing 30 years ago. (laughs) So you're talking about um, kind of a process process conversion where someone that you might literally not have like in like the conversionism you're talking about. It's like, I prayed a prayer on December 28th of this year but you're talking about like this idea that you might not even be able to point at a precise moment and say, this was the moment. It might just be more like, yeah, I started hanging out with Randall and we were talking about things. And then like six months later, things were different. Like people are crying. Yes, exactly. I mean, so I, when I grew up, there was the assumption was that if you didn't know the day you were saved, you probably weren't saved. So I had this roommate in university who had grown up in the church but he couldn't say the day that he was saved. And I remember trying to convert him, even though he had grown up in the church and he declined to pray the sinner's prayer. But for me, 
you had to do that in order to be saved. And now I, I approach it very differently. I mean, I'd like to borrow an illustration from a Nicky Gumbel where he says, look, if you are riding a train overnight from, let's say, Berlin to Paris, uh, and you wake up in the morning, it doesn't matter that you know when you cross the border. If you can see the Eiffel Tower, you know you're in Paris. And by the same token, <laughs> you don't have to know when you became a Christian, but if you can see the spiritual fruit in your life, if people are affirming that in you, if you find now that you believe in God, you love him and you want to follow him, even if you have doubts and struggles, which we all do, then I would say you're a Christian. It, it doesn't matter so much that you know the day you were saved. So, so the flip side, then we have people like I I've been to funerals, right. Where it's like, Jimmy was the worst person I ever met. He beat people to death with, you know, with a piece of iron. Uh, but he prayed to receive Jesus when he was eight. And we know he's, he's in the arms of our Lord now. Like, what would you, I assume that's kind of the flip side of the same question. Yeah. So I don't want to, to, to say to those people, you're all wrong, um, because some people do have a day when they believe they were saved and God came into their lives in a unique moment. I think that we just need to be careful about trying to impose one way of thinking about it. I think that God meets people in so many different ways. Um, so I would just, I would want to expand the recognition of the ways that God can act rather than just say it either has to be a process or there has to have been a day. So you're, you're refusing to do either or you're saying both and, which is terrible, terrible practice for a theologian. <laughs> I just feel like it's too generous and kind and uh, holistic. You know, um, I mean, just to, just to pick on your particular uh, analogy, Matt, right, with, uh, you know, Jimmy, the tire iron murderer who prayed a prayer when he was eight. I mean, to be um, fair, he's not like serial about it. It just was this just one time Joe, he took just, three guys out. Yeah. Well, no, I think that does matter, though, right? Because, like, let's say, let's say you have a person who is like in a consistent habit of uh, more or less perpetual sinning, right? Versus uh, someone who did like make a bad choice once, right. or even like did for a season of life, but repented of that. Right. 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 I think one of the things that as I've come into the Wesleyan uh, theological circles that has really helped me is that Wesleyans conceive of salvation as a relationship, not as a like legal standing, which is, I think how a lot of reformed folks. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and that's where like, I mean, that's where you get the like once saved, always saved folks who are like, no, once God signs the contract, like, it's like filed away in heaven's filing cabinet or whatever. I don't know that metaphor. Fireproof. Um, yeah, but it's like you know, like it, it. It's it's like irrevocable, and I think Wesleyans pointed at more as like no, this is a relationship, and like there there is a there is a sense where we need to persist in that relationship, um, and so one thing one thing that I've you know because I'm in a Nazarene church and so people read on our website that we're not a once saved always saved denomination and people will come and say oh so you believe you can lose your salvation and I'm like well no. Um, that implies that like you did something so bad that God revoked it. Like you lose it, right? Like, sorry, man, like taking that back. We don't believe that. Um, because that's grounded in God's character that God is faithful even when we are not. Um, but we do believe you can leave your salvation like that because it's a relationship, um, much in the way a person can choose to not continue to be married, um, regardless of what the other person wants. 
Uh, so too, we can choose to like leave our covenantal relationship with God. And we don't believe that self. I, I, I sometimes uh, liken the sinner's prayer um, the way some Christians treat it, like a magic spell. Like it's like a set of words that you say that somehow has some kind of magical effect on the world, right? Or on yourself. And that's not, that's not what it is. Like prayer, prayer isn't magical. Uh, it's meant, to, it's meant to invite us into relationship. And so we, if we pray, I mean, I prayed a sinner's prayer when I was seven and I think it was effective towards salvation, but not because I said the right words with the right cadence and the right order, you know, on my knees in the right position. Um, but rather because that invited me into a relationship with God. Um, and again, there we could spend all day problematizing all of that, I think. But that's just that's been a framework that's helped me think very differently about salvation than the way I was raised. And I, I think it it points towards the the grace that Randall that you really lean into hard in, in the last section of the book. Well, I, I think the one thing I Christians disagree, as as you know, about whether one can lose one's salvation or not. But uh, the the one thing I was really concerned with was this distorted picture growing up that you can kind of stumble into losing your salvation. So for example, the second verse I ever memorized was Mark 3.29, where Jesus warns that if you (laughs) blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, you'll never be forgiven for you're guilty of an eternal sin. And this idea that, I mean, I I was for years, I was like, did I commit this unforgivable sin? What is it? And I could never get a straight answer from people. So I was always worried that I had done X or Y, and no matter what I did now, I could not be saved. Now, that is a very unhealthy distortion, which is very different, Jared, than what you're talking about, which is a person can move out of and willfully move out of their relationship. And they can, you know, the spouse, he can choose to leave his wife and walk away from that marriage. Um, That's very different from this fear-based picture that you can Sin is, or damnation is sort of like a, a iron leg hole trap hiding underneath the leaves of the forest, and you can just step on it and one day clamp, you're stuck and you're lost forever. That's a very un, unhappy picture of, of who God is, if God could just allow us to be lost because we stepped in the wrong place. I'm curious, uh, did Matt and Clay, did either of you grow up in terror of accidentally blaspheming the spirit? Because I, Randall, that section of your book, I was like, yep. That was me. I would lay awake at night and I would mm-hmm. be thinking, don't blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Don't blaspheme the Holy Spirit. And then I would be like, I would just like think like cuss words and I'd be like, no, stop that. Stop. No, don't. But it's like when someone tells you like, don't think about a pink elephant. Like, well, you're thinking about a pink elephant, you know? Mm-hmm. And I would just, I would, same thing. I would be just like terrified. I would be like almost like in tears and be like, God, I'm sorry. I'm trying not to please forget. Like, but he won't forgive me. Like it says mm-hmm. that it's unfor- you know, did, were, did either of you experience that kind of anxiety? Oh Yeah. Yeah, there was definitely a lot of conversations because I was just bad enough to constantly be (laughs) worrying about my eternal soul. And I was just like goody goody enough that I constantly had to make sure, you know, I was at least checking off the appearance of the rules. So there was a lot of that. I remember a couple times when, you know, my friend would crash and we'd just be kind of laying there before falling asleep in the dark and having conversations that would turn towards these things. And I'd be like, dude, do you think we might like go to hell if we die? Like just 17, 18, whatever, just so worried about that. And then pretty sure we were. So then we stopped talking about it after a while, just because like clearly not good enough based on what we've been told the reality is. 
and, and and that was that was tied by the way to you know that that verse the unforgivable sin was yeah. that we had somehow rejected god by our actions did you guys ever worry that you'd been left behind cuz I, I remember getting up from a nap oh once when i was about 10 or 12 <laughs> and there was no one in the house and i was like oh, i've been left behind <laughs> no thief in the night man one. did you see thief in the night is that why Oh, yeah, that movie, that movie did not help. We saw it at the Christian <laughs> drive-in in the late 70s. Oh, my gosh. Worst horror film ever. Wait, there was a whole Christian drive-in? Oh, like like um, at, at our, our, our church, we would have a project on the side of the church. Oh. Um, That's awesome. We called it the drive-in. Yeah, of course. <laughs> no, I get it. Right? Yeah. I, I, I've told you guys, I think, before that I didn't have the blaspheme, the Holy Spirit thing, but I went through a whole thing where I was confused about whether you could lose your salvation. They said you could at my school. So it's like second through fourth grade. But my parents said it was doubting God to believe you could lose it. So I thought it was a sin to doubt God. So you would lose your salvation, but you couldn't lose your salvation. So I thought you were only saved the first time you prayed and every odd time you prayed, but the even (laughs) times you were going to hell. So I would keep track. But then eventually I would lose track. I'd be like, is it 37 or 38? And I'd be like, oh, please, dear God, please, let's just start over at one. You know? And then would you? Did that count? Did that reset it in your imagination? Yeah, which is hilarious. Like, you would think, I was a child, but you would think you'd put it together to go like, well, if he'll reset it to one whenever you lose track, you're probably good. Yeah. My solution wasn't so weird, but it was when a a, a friend's dad said something like, only people who are truly saved worry about that because it's a lot because that's that's the devil telling you that your salvation isn't real and he wouldn't he wouldn't say that to you if he already had you so it's what he <laughs> says to people who are truly saved so he can make them at least doubt and lose their effectiveness and i was like okay oh, so the man. more i doubt the more i'm really saved and it's just an attack <laughs> of satan just doubt more. I just remembered like this, this is bad. We're, it's bringing to mind all my childhood theology. I remember I'd be downstairs at our house and my room was upstairs and I'd be like, if I can make it up to my bed before I count to 10, I'll keep my soul. But if I can't, it goes to the devil. And then I would just like run as fast as I could while like counting out loud. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. I don't know why I did that. I didn't even like put an award on the other side other than you made it into the bed fast enough. I don't, <laughs> I should have like gotten the ability to play the banjo or something. Uh, Randall, I'm curious as a teacher, I, I know for me, there were always these moments where a student's question would be so profound or a statement would just, you know, after three years of kind of going through the motions, then there'd be this like really amazing day where a student's question or statement, um, got me thinking in a new way or really rattled me or whatever. So as you're thinking through these books and this book in particular, do, do you have any moments like that where a classroom moment or a student moment has really kind of uh, led you in a, in a direction of your thinking or, or just in what you wanted to say? Um, well, I, I don't think automatically in terms of the classroom, but, but I do think certainly interactions I'm, I'm sure there have been, but I do think of many interactions with other people. Like one time, my uh, a friend of mine, when he first had his child, and then he said, at last he finally understands what the love of God is like. And, and just this recognition that you can talk 
about theology and you can talk about doctrine until you're blue in the face, but there's something about the experiential acquaintance with loving another creature so fully like a parent loves a child that is this spotlight into the nature of God in a way that even the most lofty theology is not. That was sort of one of those, in a sense, eureka moments for me. And certainly there have been others like that. Uh, And what I like about something like that is some of the most profound insights into the nature of God are not the ones that are limited to the academic theologian, right? These are experiences that any person can have. God can reveal himself to people in all sorts of ways. And uh, so that was, that was profound for me. Mm -hmm. Well, we are about out of time. So I wondered, Randall, since we have excavated so many of our childhood um, phobias Will you will you end us on a, a, a grace filled note and kind of share some of the some of the reflection from more towards the end of the book? Yes, uh, uh, sure, I'd love to. So, I, I guess the the good news is is two sided in a sense because it is on the one hand uh, this profound truth that God the Son became a human being became meat as I talk about at one point because in John one fourteen it says Jesus became meat he became flesh. And he lived among us. Uh, And he did so to reconcile us to God. But the central image of the gospel is also the call for us to take up our crosses daily and follow him. And and one profound moment came to me three years ago when the Ebola virus came not only to West Africa, when it came to Texas. And uh, Texas Health Presbyterian Hospital there was a man named Thomas Duncan who had traveled from West Africa and was diagnosed with Ebola. And every single caregiver in the hospital, every doctor, every nurse, every custodian agreed to go into work and risking their own lives. And I talk at one chapter in particular about how I was so moved by these nurses that would take on 18 hour shifts working in hazmat gear in order to give care to this dying man. And I don't know what any of their religious commitments were, but I know that those people were living out what it means to be a Christian, which is to take up our cross and simply love other people in their own need without abandon. And that's a reality that I continue to try to live into in my own life, although I must admit I'm very far from it day by day, but that's where that grace bit comes in. As I can appropriate the grace of God through Christ in my own life, I hope I can extend it to others. That's beautiful. Well, uh, again, the book is called What's So Confusing About Grace. It's just fantastic. It's incredibly accessible. Um, as you've heard in, in the podcast, it's, it's, not, it's not a super dense theological treatise, though the theology is fantastic. It, it is very much a, um, a soulful meditation on what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to be in that relationship. So uh, hopefully you get a chance to get your hands on it. Uh, Randall, I wonder if uh, before we call it a day, if you would uh, join us in our time-honored storyman tradition of the pop culture pick of the week. Pow-pow! Pow-pow! There's a pow! <laughs> Excellent. Well, I'm going to go first since we talked a little bit about serial killers. Uh, I oh, am. No. Uh, my pick this week is going to be a the new Netflix series Mind Hunters. Uh, oh. It is set in the 1970s, and it is all about uh, basically the two FBI agents who sort of invented criminal profiling. 
Um, I'm three episodes in and it's really good so far. Uh, it's, it's all about them sort of coming up with a concept of serial killer, identifying these kinds of people and trying to start figuring out what makes them tick. It's really an interesting show so far. So wait, is it based on a true story or it's yeah. like loosely connected? Oh, uh, I don't know how, I mean, it seems very true, but okay. I'm, I, I, I'm not an expert in that field by any stretch of the imagination. So I could not hazard a guess. It's awesome. Yeah, Mindhunters on Netflix right now. Well, I've got a, a Netflix one. So since, Jerry, you mentioned Netflix, I mean, I, I'm basically sitting on my hands trying to keep myself busy until Stranger Things next week. Here, here. <laughs> but in the interim, uh, at least in Canadian Netflix, Daniel Day-Lewis' 2007 There Will Be Blood was just came back on. Nice. Ooh. That is heavy. That is a heavy movie. He plays... Daniel Plainview, who's this oil man in the driven oil man in the early 20th century in Texas who establishes his oil kingdom. And you see the mixture between oil and blood and broken family relationships and destiny and law and grace and um, and a violent ending in a bowling alley. I'll just leave it at that (laughs) with a milkshake. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah, that is a poignant finale to that film for sure good pick and and it is i mean it's also poignant doubly because daniel day lewis just announced he's retiring and he's only been in i don't know half a dozen films or something but he always chose his roles so carefully so every one of his movies is great he truly is a genius well mine is a book that i've been enjoying called ghostland an american history in haunted places by colin dickey And I don't know, I swear me and this guy must have been crisscrossing America, just missing each other for the same few year period that he was researching his book. It's really good. He goes through what our ghost stories mean. So it's a social science like book. His is not memoir. His is very much from that traveler who goes to places and takes meaning away. Um but he just has some really smart observations, some really good insights. He talks, for example, about portions of Richmond, Virginia, where they're riddled with ghost stories, and yet the ghost stories are never about former slaves or African Americans. And he talks about how a ghost story evolves, and it morphs over time through the memories and recollections and knowledge of the people telling the story. So if a certain region doesn't have stories about a certain group, it kind of informs us about contemporary society as well. And it talks about different aspects of hauntings, like how many of these stories include spinsters and women and women who defy social norms and spiritualism and the evolution and legacy of that even today. So I really am enjoying this book. And uh, who knows, maybe we'll get them on the show sometime. But it's called Ghostland, an American History in Haunted Places. Yeah, I And cannot. you tweeted an uh, interview with that. That was really good, too. Yes, that's right. He was on uh, an AP travel podcast called Get Out of Here. Uh, wow, that sounds amazing. I, I'll have to check that out. Um, my pop culture pick of the week, as often happens, is actually one that JR mentioned some time ago uh, because I then followed, like all of you should, the uh, ideas and thoughts and suggestions of Papau. And I picked up N.K. Jemison's The Fifth Season, which is a science fiction novel. 
uh, about basically, you know, the four seasons, right? We have spring, summer, fall, winter. Uh, on this world, occasionally, it might be every thousand years, it might be a hundred, it might be ten. It's unpredictable. Occasionally, a fifth season comes where basically the Earth tries to murder everyone on Earth. And uh, it's pretty great. And the writing, I, I was telling JR, I started and I was a little bit annoyed because there's a section, there's three kind of point of view characters. And one section is done in second person. So you do this, you do that. And it was driving me nuts. But as I got into deeper into the book, I realized what was going on and it's masterfully done. Like I was surprised multiple times in a way that I haven't been by a science fiction novel in, in a good time. Uh, so really interesting. I've already read the second book, actually, and I'm gearing up for the third pretty soon. It's super good. It really is. All right. Well, those are our pop culture picks of the week. Uh, Randall, before we go, uh, I think most of our listeners are already connected with you. But just in case, we've picked up some new folks since you were last on. Uh, how can people find you on the World Wide Web? Uh, RandallRouser.com. R-A-N-D-A-L-R-A-U-S-E-R.com. Excellent. And you are super active on Twitter. Uh, so we'll we'll put links to all your social media at NorvalRogers.com slash Storymen in the show notes for this episode. Also, it's at uh, Facebook.com slash The Storymen. Randall, as always, it's just been such a treat to have you on. Thank you for uh, hanging out with us. And uh, I assume you have a new book coming out probably like next week or so. So... <laughs> Next uh, year, sometime. Most soon, so. <laughs> You're like the only author I know who's more prolific than Michelotta. So, um, yeah, we'll look forward to having you back again soon. Well, yeah, my pleasure. Always good to, to be with my second favorite Trinity. Yes. <laughs> Go in grace. <sighs> thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening. Uh, thanks for rating and reviewing us. We'll be back next week with another great show. Until then, thanks for listening and be well. there's a man rather sometimes there's some men and i'm talking about the story men here and i know what you're thinking those are some tall fellers i don't know if that's three stories separately or three combined but we're missing the point sometimes there's some men and you want to know what these hombres are about well i won't say they're heroes they're just the men who are right for their time and place these men, uh, shoot, I lost my place. Well, I've probably introduced them enough, so just relax for a spell and bend your ear their way.